Welcome to Imagined Tomorrow. This is a podcast where we imagine futures for India through the lens of science and technology. In every episode, we explore one hypothetical future scenario for India. And we talk to various experts and see how the journey to that future might play out, keeping Indian realities in mind. I'm your host, Shreya Das Gupta. When I was a kid, there was a brief moment when, like many others, I wanted to be an astronaut too. Because I thought that was the only way humans could go to space. But I had bad eyesight and I wore really thick glasses and I assumed that you needed to be a perfect human with perfect vision to be an astronaut. So I gave up this dream for another one. But over the last couple of months, this happened. Roaring off the launch pad in remote West Texas, Jeff Bezos' billionaire space dreams came true today. Billionaire Richard Branson, now the first person to reach the edge of space in his very own spacecraft. 357 miles above planet Earth tonight for everyday Americans in process of proving that space travel for the rest of us is possible. Three billionaires, Jeff Bezos, founder of Amazon and Blue Origin, Richard Branson, founder of the Virgin Group, and Elon Musk, CEO of companies like SpaceX and Tesla, launched their own private spacecrafts that carried not professional astronauts, but private citizens to space. Sort of like space tourists. A few very wealthy people have also done this in the past. But they've paid for seats on Russian rockets and flown to the International Space Station with other astronauts. So this year's flights are different, because until recently, space travel and exploration was totally dominated by governments. Now we are seeing private companies and individuals, with lots of money and the vision, building and launching their own spacecrafts to mainly fly civilians. On these flights, there have been passengers with poor eyesight, like me. There was a nurse with a prosthesis, and there were people over 70 years of age, like my dad. So these private space flights give us a glimpse into some very big possibilities, especially for children today harboring dreams of going to space. So I called two young friends. Sometimes I think me becoming an astronaut and traveling to Mars and Jupiter. Saturn. I mean, to see the rings, I guess. Hello, my name is Nikshep Raman. I'm 11 years old. So my name is Priyoti and I'm nine years old. Nikshep is my neighbor in Bangalore. Priyoti is my niece. She recently moved to Scotland, so she speaks with a charming Scottish accent now. They don't know each other, but they both love travelling, so I offered them imaginary tickets to an imaginary space flight to wherever with whoever they wish. I really want to check the, the volcano on Mars, the big one, but maybe my pet. I mean, I think with friends, a school trip, there'd probably be like lines to go through the rings, so... Priyoti wants to take her pet to the volcano on Mars. She's been asking for a dog for a while, although recently she's also mentioned the possibility of a tiger, which her parents are not encouraging at all. Nick Shape is also pretty clear on his destination. And both have some interesting ideas of what the spacecrafts they travel in would look like. Probably be pretty small, maybe like 
small single bed with uh, just a few cupboards and stuff for storage and maybe some sort of heater for food not much else maybe a table i mean if there were windows that would probably be not that interesting actually cuz you're staring out into nothing first of all i would want artificial gravity i wouldn't feel comfortable me flying around and second thing maybe an area which is like safe for animals and stuff because like you know pets can go crazy and press on maybe the the parachute button and then we're we're landing on mars by an accident that is a pretty valid concern to have if you're taking your pet along but that's not the only concern these two have the first one would be the exterior ceiling cuz like space is random it can be hot it can be cold the pressure can be zero it can be higher than the deepest point in the world's oceans it would have to accommodate all of that and still stay intact sima worries of going to space memory is maybe there's no more fuel to travel and then i'm just floating in space apart from that i would not like the the oxygen to like run out cuz i wouldn't be able to hold my breath Nikshep and Priyoti can sort of picture a future with interplanetary travel. So in this episode, we imagine a future where traveling to space becomes as common as flying in an Indigo or SpiceJet flight. How soon might this become a reality for people in general? Will we see space tourism happen from India? What would space flights and living spaces in space look like and are we ready as a country to leap into this future? what happened to commercial jetliners or flying or commercial jetliners in in the last century is going to happen with private space flight in this century this is dr sushmita mohanty she's a space architect who grew up in ahmedabad among india's space pioneers like dr vikram sarabhai and his team which included her father by the way she's worked in space programs of boeing and nasa and consulted on projects for the european space agency and the indian space research organization or isro and she's built three private companies that work in the space sector including india's first private space company way back in 2008 called earth to orbit as she reminds us flying from one city to another or one country to another is pretty routine today but the first ever commercial flight that carried paying civilians started only in 1952 just 70 years ago so back in the 60s for example you know flying on an airplane was a big deal you would actually dress up and it was an event i mean even in 96 you know when i started flying internationally it was a very different world from what it is today and now if you look at it airplanes have become like buses i mean you know everybody flies very routinely similarly with space flight i think the initial decade or two is going to be very expensive um not everybody can afford to travel to space and it will be done in a way as if it's a grand event right it's it's not just a flight and we saw that this year each space flight being celebrated as grand events and there were a couple of different kinds of these flights Let's start with the ones that Branson and Bezos launched. These touched the edge of space. And I say the edge of space because where outer space starts differs based on who you ask. The United States always wanting to be different 
accepts about 80 kilometers or 50 miles above Earth as the cutoff point for space. This is what Branson's flight crossed. But most others accept an altitude of about 100 kilometers as the starting point of outer space. This is what people refer to as the Karman line and this is what the spacecraft launched by Bezos crossed. And remember what Bezos and Branson did was essentially they kicked off what you could call uh, suborbital commercial suborbital flights. They did not go around the earth. They went up and they came back down. And when they came back down at the tip of that trajectory for a few seconds, they could all float free. So, if it's bragging rights that you want that you went and touched space, then you can take a suborbital flight. If you have the money that is. In fact, both Bezos and Branson have received a fair share of criticism for launching what are perceived to be mainly vanity projects offering space joyrides to the ultra rich. Dr. Mohanty says the PR around these flights were not particularly palatable. But what excites her is the work of the engineers and designers behind these space flights. The decades of innovation, successes and failures that have finally led to this year's safe launches with civilians. I think this is just the beginning and let's not forget that since the flight of Yuri Gagarin in 1961 some 500 odd people a little plus minus have flown to space primarily as civil servants i.e astronauts so that is about to change you know in a year you could or in a couple of years you'll have 500 people flying to to the edge of space i wouldn't say space space because you're just going up and down but that's that's a quantum jump right right there we saw another kind of space flight last month four american citizens flew in a spacecraft manufactured and operated by elon musk's company spacex they did not have any professional astronaut on board and only these civilians orbited our planet for three whole days at a height of about 590 kilometers from earth this is higher than the international space station where professional astronauts from many countries work so if these flights are any indication then we are about to see space travel change in a big way in fact i would imagine there will be human presence on the moon within the decade and If you ask me most likely it will be China the only country that has successfully landed on the moon uh, and not once three consecutive times in the recent in recent years is China the last time the US landed was in 72 and the last time Russia landed was in 76 uh China not only had three successive uh, soft landings on the moon they even brought back moon samples rocks and dust in the last flight which was in december of 2019 that hasn't happened in the last 44 years so i think china is on target with their plans for lunar exploration and i think they will probably be the first ones to land humans on the moon and not just the moon humanity in a future not so far away could be traveling to mars as well i wouldn't say it will be within the decade i would say maybe in the next decade and it will be more of a technology demonstrator flight where a crew will be sent to mars a demonstrator flight because you can't fly to mars whenever you want both earth and mars orbit the sun and so sometimes they are closer together sometimes they are really far away so to fly from earth to mars you need the two planets to be aligned in just the right way so that travel from one planet to another is both time efficient and fuel efficient 
this desired alignment happens once in 26 months or so or about once in two years and scientists refer to this as the launch window. Now Elon Musk says his company will have people flying to Mars in just a few years. Earth-Mars synchronization happens roughly every two years. So every two years there's a, an opportunity to, to fly to Mars. Uh, so then in 2024, uh, we want to try to fly four ships. So four ships, two with humans, flying to Mars by 2024. That is Musk's guarantee. But Dr. Mohanty says it's not as easy as he makes it sound. And if you look at the orbital mechanics and uh, fuel efficiency and all that, you will have to spend a total of nearly 500 days going to Mars, staying on the surface and coming back. Because you can't just fly back any time. There's a certain launch window you have to stick to. You have to get the timing right, the technology right, and a whole lot of other things right. So we have to be prepared, not just technologically, but physiologically, psychologically, find the right crew, the first one, to send to Mars. And remember, if you take six months to fly to a planet like Mars, when you get there, if you haven't done your countermeasures properly, what I mean by countermeasures is you have to work out, you know, you have to exercise because in space and microgravity, your bones and muscle atrophy. That is because in a weightless environment, your bones and muscles are not doing much work. So without active regular exercise, they weaken. So if you don't do it right, you might say break a bone once you get there and it might never heal. You might end up landing there and you are a vegetable because you really haven't done what you ought to have done during the six months of interplanetary flight. Okay, that sounds pretty horrifying. But what I'm hearing is that traveling to Mars could become real in my lifetime. I think it's going to happen in our lifetime. It's going to happen, in, I think, within the next 20 years, probably in the next decade as opposed to this one. But that doesn't mean that it'll, it, it'll become routine right away. So we could be seeing many different kinds of space travel happen in the next couple of decades. Stuff that we only pictured through sci-fi movies and books until now. But can commercial space travel or tourism become a reality from India? There are only seven countries in the world which are launch capable. What I mean by that is they have the technological capability to launch spacecrafts into orbit, i.e. they have rockets. India is one of them. These launch vehicles or rockets carry all that we want to put in space, from small satellites to gigantic ones, right up to those missions that we send to Mars and the Moon. So it's a very, very select league of nations. That's number one. If you don't have launch capability, forget it. Neither can you launch spacecraft, nor can you launch humans, nothing. So that's already step one. Now, can India launch humans? Not yet. So far, only three countries have done this. US, Russia and China. We've had one Indian and some Indian Americans go to space, but they've flown on foreign spacecrafts. Like Rakesh Sharma, he flew in a Soviet rocket. So India will become the fourth country in the world if we succeed with our Gaganyaan mission, which is planned in a couple of years. This Gaganyaan mission plans to be India's first human spacecraft program. And it hopes to send Indian astronauts to space and have them orbit the Earth for up to seven days. Any country that gets started on human spaceflight, it takes a good 10-12 years to launch humans into space. So India did not start its human space program yesterday. We started this program way back around 2007. You know, when I moved back to India in 2008, one of the first things I did 
was I visited Trivandrum, where you have the Vikram Sarabhai Space Center. I met this team of engineers that was already engaged in designing for human spaceflight, for India's human space program. They didn't publicize it very much. It's as it is, ISRO's PR is not non-existent. People don't know much about what's going on. So this team has been working for more than 10 years. And over this decade, a whole bunch of research, engineering and testing has been going on. Because launching humans to space is a pretty risky affair. You know, so there's a residential astronaut training facility that has been planned in the outskirts of Bangalore. I mean, not many people know about it. We have, we meaning India, ISRO has tested uh, crew capsule demonstrators twice already. What I mean by that is you take a crew capsule without the crew, it's not manned. You launch it into orbit and you orbit the Earth for a certain number of days. Then you come back down and you, you in, in our case, we will do a splashdown in the Bay of Bengal. A splashdown is basically when the capsule lands safely in the sea with the help of parachutes. So the crew capsule does a splashdown in the Bay of Bengal. And what you do is you not only test the avionics, um, the communication gear, all of that, but you also test what, what are called ceramic tiles, which go on the skin of your capsule. When you re-enter, the temperatures are very, very high. I think it goes as high as 3000 Celsius or something. So you should not burn up during re-entry. So the ceramic tiles are a very important part of the technology demonstrator. And India has successfully conducted two such tests, demonstration tests without the crew, and a splashed in the Bay of Bengal. And then you retrieve the capsule. The Navy or any other agency goes and retrieves the capsule and brings it back to land. So all of this planning has been going on, and now it will all culminate in the Gaganyaan mission. We don't know the exact dates, but I think it could be 2023, I think, or 24. Dr. Mohanty says she's looking forward to the mission's launch. I am too. But there's one thing she wishes had been done differently. The selection criteria for who gets to be the first Indian astronauts to fly in the mission. Our astronauts, the first selection was open only to men. I was very, very disappointed because India has the highest number of women pilots in the world. I mean, 12% of our pilots are women. Whereas if you compare to the US, I think about 4% are women. So why is it that ISRO did not open up the astronaut selection to women? I mean, at the end of the day, they need pilots for their debut flights, right? Eventually, even others can fly. Okay, so we might see our government launching the first ever all-male space flight from India in a couple of years. But can we expect civilians, like you and me, to pay for a seat and also go to space alongside our astronauts, like we've had on the Russian spacecrafts? I don't think Isro's Gaganyan will be a commercial capsule. So it's not that tourists haven't flown. Uh, yes, Russia has flown tourists before. But the Gaganyan thing is really um, a government program. And it is meant to not only demonstrate, but also... Uh, help India master the art of, you know, human spaceflight. So can we expect any kind of commercial space travel from India then? Commercial space travel will have to be done by a private company. So we have two young startups. One is called Agnikul and one is called Skyroot. And both of them are attempting to build small rockets which could launch small satellites into low Earth orbit. All right. So that is sort of baby steps by private enterprise in India to launch a rocket. So far, the rockets are all launched by ISRO. So I think if Agnikul and Skyroot succeed, again, like I said, 
these are not heavy lifters. These are not big rockets. These are for small satellites in low Earth orbit. But I think that would be a wonderful first step for India as a country to then start sort of laying the runway for maybe either of them or a new company or a couple of companies to get into even attempting human spaceflight. So commercial space travel from India will probably not happen in the next decade. But if you can afford to travel to space in, say, a Virgin Galactic or SpaceX flight, what kinds of design and architecture could you be seeing in space? Because at least in the initial years, you'll be paying a bomb. But before that, a quick note about a bonus episode that will come out next week. A trip to Mars could be two years long, and you will probably want to stay connected with your family and friends back on Earth. You will want the internet. There are plans of building satellites around the moon and around Mars to provide some 4G or 5G internet connection around those places. But of course, these are currently still more pipe dreams under sort of like prototype thinking. So what does the future of the internet in space look like? Will you be able to chat with your friends in real time or perform from space live on Instagram? Watch out for the bonus episode. Okay, back to this episode. As I had mentioned, Dr. Mohanty is a space architect. She helps design and build different aspects of living in space, right from the design of spaceships to possible accommodations in space. What excites me about designing for living in extraterrestrial environments, I mean, let's not forget we are actually living on a spaceship which is hurtling through space at enormous speeds. But how do we live outside of Earth? A whole lot changes when we step outside our planet. We cannot take, for example, the kind of things we take for granted on Earth. You know, one gravity. It could be one-third gravity. It could be one-sixth, one-eighth. So how do we adapt to variable gravity? Second, we take atmospheric pressure for granted. What if there's no atmospheric pressure? We even take natural illumination and the electromagnetic spectrum, you know, the gamut of colors uh, that we see for granted. I mean, there are places out in our solar system, which is, there's no atmosphere. It's black, black and white and gray. So that is what excites me, Shreya, about designing for extraterrestrial living. So let's start with the one place where you'll be spending a lot of time as a space traveler who's shelled out a ton of money, spacecrafts. So would private spacecrafts look similar to, let's say, the International Space Station, where astronauts live? Or like Dr. Mohanty says, where civil servants employed by various space agencies live. If you are a civil servant, you will fly no matter what, right? So the engineering-centric approach that has been taken by government agencies for decades now will have to change. Let's say if you pay $450,000 for a suborbital flight on Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2, you would expect a certain standard of comfort and style and safety that the private companies which will carry passengers, paying passengers, they will hire and employ uh, some of the finest industrial designers, interface designers and what have you, experienced designers. And so future private space flights may offer you spectacular sights and perspectives, but also the opportunity to do art and bring to life all that we've perhaps not even imagined. The spaceship or, you know, the hotel or whatever you want to call it, the habitation system will comprise of uh, multiple modules which are plugged together in a piecemeal fashion. 
and there will be areas for your private crew quarters there will be areas for meal times there will be areas for recreation there might even be areas for doing performing arts experiments in space for example so i think it will be in some ways similar to the space station but it will go a little bit beyond and look at what are the other functions of an orbiting habitat where tourists will stay because they won't be spending all their day their entire time doing experiments and housekeeping right they'll be there either for recreation or for doing some kind of artistic experiments or scientific experiments so that's about spacecrafts or orbiting hotels but what about living spaces on the moon or mars i think the way i see the future unravel is it's it's going to be hybrid mostly so there will be solid parts of the habitat which can be flown on a rocket to the destination let's say to mars and there could be also parts that we can scavenge from the descent module which actually lands on mars as opposed to the orbiting module and we could also have inflatable parts which are essentially when you get to your destination you plug it in and then you inflate it and you rigidize it some parts dr mohanty says may also be 3d printed because 3d printing now you you see on earth we are able to not only 3d print large sculptures but also small houses compact houses similarly we've even 3d printed a bridge in amsterdam we meaning human human beings so i see a similar thing manifesting even in space architecture but let's take a step back and recollect what dr mohanty said earlier that the things we take for granted on earth change drastically in space and so building homes or hotels or any kind of living space will have to account for these changes like the galactic radiation that we'll experience in space but are largely protected from on earth so for example if you're on the moon there's no atmosphere on earth we are protected by the atmospheric blanket we are also protected by what is called the van allen radiation belt there are two magnetic belts around the earth like again a, a security blanket we don't have them on the moon for example so you are directly exposed to galactic radiation so the chances of you getting cancer are much higher so how do we protect humans who will live on the moon for days or months or what have you we don't have any easy answers the the only two things that we as designers try to incorporate in in our design concepts one is you build subterranean so you build inside a lava tube you go underground and that's like being in a bunker you know on earth so that can protect you i actually did an episode imagining a future where indian cities expand underground do listen to it after this one of course another way to do it is uh, have walls of water so imagine your habitat having a sleeve a water wall to protect you from galactic radiation but again these are still very theoretical you know un- until we actually build something on the moon for human habitation these are concepts what we do know for sure is that to visit places like the moon or mars we will have to train ourselves physically and learn to perform some basic skills differently from pooping peeing brushing your teeth sleeping and even walking in different gravity environments if you look at grainy videos of the apollo landings you will see that the astronauts are like bending forward and hopping like bunnies it's because the backpack is quite heavy so they have to kind of tilt forward to kind of get the center of weight and center of mass aligned in a way that they don't topple they don't fall and also because it's 16 gravity you know we we have to learn 
how to translate ourselves on those variable gravity environments see on earth we walk a certain way we stand a certain way we are in one gravity that's not going to happen on the other planets so i think we will learn and we will have to train ourselves as well and of course how can i not mention the one thing that sort of highlights travel for us food the food that you come up with usually has to fly either in cans or it has to be dehydrated and then when you are in orbit you rehydrate it sort of like the dry cup noodles and upma you get in spice jet and indigo flights and you pour hot water before eating them <laughs> something similar you would imagine but it won't be in a way where you can take off the lid because it will float so but but yeah the rehydration thing would be similar yes according to some media reports the defense food research laboratory in mysore is preparing a special menu for the astronauts who will be flying on the gaganyaan mission and the menu has things like idli poha biryani and chicken korma let's say if it's chicken korma as you are suggesting then it will be in a uh, dried form so when you go to space you will hydrate it with hot water and then mash it up and eat it if you're let's say flying with dried mango right that is fine that's light and it flies and you just take it with you you don't have to rehydrate you can just chew on it imagining being able to live in space is exciting and i can go on and on but dr mohanty is quick to point out that anybody going to space has to think about it really hard and do so responsibly as cliche as it sounds certainly not the way elon musk wants you to believe i mean if i were to meet musk the way he talks about colonization he really needs to think about it because if we were to colonize mars as his ancestors colonized africa we are in trouble right so how do we do this how do we travel to other destinations and make sure we don't repeat the same mistakes that we have here on earth and and trash yet another planet so i think we have to be very careful not only with our vocabulary it shouldn't be a vocabulary of conquest it should be a vocabulary of exploration and delicate environmental concerns that need to be addressed so how do we address these concerns both on our planet and outside of it i reached out to a space lawyer for some answers would you want to be a space flight passenger slash tourist um i think maybe when it becomes very common it would be interesting to see earth from a different perspective that is deepika jayakodi she's a space lawyer who thinks a lot about how we can responsibly travel and explore space i remember when i was much younger reading news about richard branson wanting to open the business to tourists in about in i think in 2009 even and of course they encountered so many uh, hurdles including the death of a pilot in a crash in 2014 they had to redesign the vehicle modify it and so on so the fact that the space uh, flight happened that's that's a momentous thing but on the other hand with what is going on in the world in the sort of issues that we have it's also something that we need to question do do we really uh, need this why is this so important for the world and 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 so on we've been grappling with these big questions ever since the space race began at the same time commercial space travel is already becoming a thing 
and the Indian government is going beyond ISRO and becoming more open to the private space industry. Once the, the technology, the uh, business interest, as well as the legal framework, they advance together, there is definitely a possibility in India too. Of course, you need to have a secure um, uh, environment in terms of laws and regulations and standards as well. But we don't have this at the moment. What we have are some international space-related treaties that lay out broad guidelines on how countries can and cannot use space and what we can and cannot do in space. Like we cannot, for example, test nuclear weapons in space. India is part of most of these international agreements, like the Outer Space Treaty. So the Outer Space Treaty, which is, let's say, the constitutional uh, law of space, if we can call it that, this lays down certain uh, do's and don'ts. And one of the important things is the obligation on countries to, to authorize and monitor uh, the activities of the private entities. So if you are a company in India and you decide to offer space flights to civilians for tourism, then the Indian government will have to give you permission and monitor your activities. Sounds simple. But what does this look like? Without India-specific rules, how do we really ensure that space flights are safe for our citizens? That the operators are kept accountable and that these flights don't harm us or the environment? If we think about this from the Indian context, we don't have specific laws yet in, to cover this topic. But national uh, space legislation is in the making. So we have the draft bill, but it's not a law yet. And it's most likely to cover at least some aspects that relate to space tourism. So at least the part about authorizing commercial space activities and so on. And that's to be seen, how far it can accommodate uh, space tourism, how far it can uh, look into the safety and security of tourists and so on. What if... We were to draft a legislation that specifically tackles private space travel or tourism. What kinds of questions should we be looking to answer? I think the first and foremost would be to deal with the safety and security of tourists. What sort of rights do they get in terms of their safety? How should they behave during this flight? What sort of training do they undergo? How are they going to be uh, selected? That is a key question. And that really depends on the type of space flight that you can have. For example, if you want to take a suborbital flight, which will expose you to a few minutes or so of weightlessness, you may not need much training. But if you want to fly in orbit around Earth or you want to travel to Mars, that is a whole different ballgame. Sort of like climbing your local hill versus climbing the Mount Everest. How are you going to make sure their liability and their insurance requirements are met? How are you going to deal with tourists who might be differently able? How are you going to make it an accessible venture? To me, that's pretty key to private space flights. They open up the opportunity to experience space to a wide variety of people. People who would not have otherwise cleared the traditional requirements of an astronaut selection program. Like one of the participants on the SpaceX mission, Haley Arsenault, is a bone cancer survivor. She had to have part of her thigh bone replaced by metal rods when she was a child. Nobody with the prosthesis had travelled to space before, so she was the first one to do so. And SpaceX had to make some adjustments for her. Haley said in some interviews that her capsule seat had to be adjusted to relieve her of knee pain. And she had to train and see if her prosthesis could handle the accelerations she would experience while the rocket took off and landed. But what it shows is that space travel can be made more accessible than it is currently. 
and our legislations must reflect that. Although in India, it's hard to find public places or travel made accessible for people with disabilities. In India itself, we have the Persons with Disabilities Act and we see quite a lot of public spaces that still do not have the infrastructure to accommodate them. So can we say maybe the space uh, infrastructure or the space tourism infrastructure could uh, change these things? Could they be futuristic in the sense that they also make it uh, inclusive to show the rest of the world that they could also do it. I think that that is to be seen. There are questions being asked, but we could do a lot more work than what is being done now. At the same time, we also have to think about the rights that travellers get. Because again, remember, what we take for granted on Earth can change drastically in outer space. And there are folks within the international space law community who are looking at issues of human rights when we step outside our planet. And they ask all these relevant questions. Okay, let's say there is a mission to Mars. And at some point, if these are people beyond scientists and and people who are going to work on Mars, what sort of rights will they have? Do they have a right to breathable air? Do they have a right to food and so on? And I think these are questions that even if they seem far-fetched and even if they seem fictional at this point of time, these are questions that need to be addressed. And within the international space community, these are being asked. We also have to make rules and standards for the private spaceflight operators, our SpaceX and Virgin Galactic equivalents. So right now, in the Indian context, I think we would have to wait until the national space legislation comes in to see how the launch activities are classified, under whose authority they bring suborbital flights and, and space flights in. Because uh, at least with suborbital flights, there's an element of aviation involved as well, because you're not exactly going out of the atmosphere all the time you're still uh, in the national airspace and maybe also going uh, into another country's airspace so how is this going to be regulated is it going to be governed by the civil aviation authority or is it going to be governed by another space authority or something that is a hybrid of both and I think that has an impact on how operators will be managed as well, what sort of certifications they need to have in, the licensing and approval of operators, what sort of standards must they uh, adhere to, what sort of uh, qualifications should the operators have. There's one thing in particular that both Deepika and Dr. Mohanty feel passionately about, as do I, and that's the impact of commercial space travel on our environment. Because until recently, space travel was sort of restricted to governments. Mainly to be the first ones to explore the unexplored and for science. From navigation to weather forecasts, our everyday lives are quite heavily dependent on things we've put in space. But with commercial players coming in, could we be staring at a worse crisis than the one we are in today? Could we be destroying the only planet we know that nurtures lives in our quest to wander through the inhospitable, unexplored universe? And could we preemptively do something that won't get us there? Yes, I think the easiest way is to start off with what is happening with aviation as well. I think a lot more people are becoming conscious about 
when they should take a flight. We are thinking about the impact of emissions from flights itself. The aviation industry itself is thinking about having green fuel, thinking about alternative ways of making aviation a sustainable mode of transport. So right now, we have very few uh, space launches that are happening for, for the sake of tourism. But imagine this becomes more common. We have to think about the emissions uh, from these launches. We have to think about any debris uh, that may be created uh, from these launches. We, we might have to think about how the environment around these launch pads are monitored and evaluated. Earlier this year, a SpaceX test flight blew up midair and spread debris beyond the company's private land in South Texas across a national wildlife refuge, which is home to endangered wildlife species. The debris took three months to clean up. So where will we in India have the launch sites for our commercial space flights? And how will we monitor the trail of impacts their launches leave behind? Then there's this question that I've had. Space travel, at least for a while, will be something that only the very wealthy can afford. If it is going to happen in any case, can we derive some social benefit out of it? So when such questions pop up, I think a lot of these companies would see the need to address the ethics and the moral need for having these flights as well, apart from the obvious scientific benefits that we may have. For example, you could also say, okay, if at the beginning stages, this is only going to be an activity for the rich, can we think about bringing in social responsibility rules and regulations into play here? The SpaceX mission that flew civilians? It was an American billionaire, Jared Isaacman, who funded the mission. And he used this mission to raise $200 million for children's cancer research. So I, I think there are a lot of creative ways to think about how we regulate commercial space tourism as an industry in India. And we never know, it could also be that India becomes the next space tourism destination in the world. On a lighter note, I have this question. What are some uniquely Indian behaviours or Indianisms that you imagine might play out when space tourism takes off from India? I would love to hear from you, so send me your ideas in an email, a voice note or a tweet. You'll find the details in the show notes. Anyway, this is what Deepika had to say. Traveling as groups, I think this is something that is very uh, unique to the Indian culture where we travel with uh, large groups of families and friends. So I wonder what it could mean for space tourism. Will we get uh, group tickets? Will we be able to do weddings in space, which is, which is so common? I think even during COVID time, some family in the South, they chartered a flight to uh, flout rules and uh, get married in air. So do you think during the next pandemic, we'll see wealthy families chartering a space flight and just going off our planet instead of just heading to Maldives? And maybe there's also a food component. Most of our travel is also related to, to food. We pack food uh, when we travel in trains and uh, buses and cars. So how would we do this if we are taking a short flight to space? Will we be carrying teplas and uh, puliogre? How, how do we regulate that? <laughs> so group travel, food and weddings. For Deepika, these might be the Indian space tourism mantras. But how can we forget Bollywood? We already have the Russians filming in the International Space Station for a movie 
where the protagonist goes to space to save an astronaut's life. Tom Cruise is heading there next. So will we see Vidya Balan or Tapsi Pannu or Akshay Kumar heading to space for a movie? This is bound to happen. I mean, whether space tourism hits off in India or not, I, I bet there will be one movie scene shot in space very soon. This episode was created and hosted by me, Shreya Das Gupta. The intro and outro music is by Abhijit Shailanath. As always, a huge thank you to Abhishek Madan for giving feedback on the scripts. Do send me your suggestions about the Indianisms you imagine if space tourism becomes a thing here in India. Email me at imagined.tomorrow at gmail.com or send me a tweet at Shreya Das Gupta. You can find the transcripts of all episodes on the website imaginedtomorrow.com. And don't forget, I have a really fun bonus episode coming next week. Also, hold on. There's one last bit left. Kyawa, are you scared? Maybe a little. Of dying? What? No. I'm scared I'll no longer have my job when I'm back. But you got your leave approved. And your boss went just a couple of years back, didn't she? Yeah, but a year and a half is a really long time. My boss could change, the world could change. What if there's another pandemic? I don't care. We won't be around for it. Abbe, who will take care of my parents? Namaskar. मार्स को जाने वाली स्पेस इंडिया शटल की उड़ान दो शून्य शून्य में आपका स्वागत है सबसे पहले हम सीट नंबर पाँच से दस के यात्रियों को द्वार संख्या चौबीस पर आमंत्रित करते हैं चलो दैट्स मी कूल आई जॉइन यू इन समाइम डू यू वांट समथिंग फ्रॉम हियर नो नो आई एम गुड देख ले यू वॉन्ट फाइंड अ स्टार बॉक्स फॉर टू मोर इ